I really feel like that we have this moral obligation to write toward hope for children. Mm. And as a Christian, I feel like that's just our moral obligation to tell children the truth. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Sarah McKenzie is the host of the Read Aloud Revival, a podcast, website, and membership that helps parents nurture warm family relationships and book-loving children through reading aloud. She's written two nonfiction books for parents, The Read Aloud Revival and Teaching from Rest. But her new book, instead of being about reading aloud, is a book to be read aloud. Sarah recently launched a Kickstarter campaign for her picture book, A Little More Beautiful, which was illustrated by Breezy Brookshire. Sarah McKenzie, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast again. Oh, it's always so fun to talk with you, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here. And um, you are about to kick off, well, no, by the time this publishes, you will have already kicked off a Kickstarter for a new book. The name of, I, I remember the name of the main character, but now I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book. Can you help you me better out? remember the name of the, That's the right. main character. You might be in trouble. Um, yes, it's called A Little More Beautiful, The Story of a Garden. And it is a picture book that we are uh, launching on Kickstarter. And yeah, as this goes live, I think we'll be right in the middle of it. We're very excited. Yeah. Sort of the first book, um, we're launching a publishing imprint at Read Aloud Revival. And this is the it's not sort of the first book in the imprint. It is the first book in the imprint. Uh-huh. It's sort of how we're launching the whole project. So, yeah. Um, so the main character, well, there's two main characters. Um, the first main character is a, a, an old woman named Lou Alice. Yes. It's a name that it's one of my favorites of all time. Okay. It is my favorite of all time. <laughs> I think she would like you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because that's my wife's name. And um, so I, I, I thought your uh, your choice of name was was impeccable. Um, did we ever sort out? Okay, Leah, let's talk about this because first of all, your Lou Alice is d- a darling. I absolutely love her. My oldest daughter and I got to meet her, if you remember, uh, mm-hmm. when we were in California a couple of years ago, and she still talks about meeting Lou Alice to this day. <laughs> She's like one of those memorable, like you just want to be, I just wish I lived closer to your wife. I love her so much. Um, interestingly, I agree. I, when I, <laughs> you agree. That's good. Um, I did not consciously name the character after your wife. I hadn't met her yet when I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's this subconscious thing that happened because I do kind of collect <laughs> names. You know, when I mm-hmm. hear a name, I tend to put them in this notes app on my phone. Like, oh, I like that name. I didn't do that with Lou Alice, but I think you must have said her name at some point. Yeah. And I thought, that is a fabulous name. <laughs> and then it came out in the story because then when I was talking to you about it later and you said, that's my wife's name, all of a sudden I could see like, things coming into focus in my brain. Like, oh, wait, I think I stole your wife's name. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm excited about it. Uh, She's talking to her team of lawyers about what her what her options are. (laughs) No, I think she's she's uh, glad to see it, too. Uh, But your Lou Alice um, is a is a surreptitious planter of gardens or a garden. Yes. Um, Kind of a light moon. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the little refrain? Um, so water. tend, water, mend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love okay, so that. Here's what happened. Yeah. I was in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, actually, I had gone to New England 
to meet with Tommy DePaola, like mm-hmm. you do. Tommy DePaola, right. this iconic author and illustrator. Yeah. Who Not I your had. dog, the actual person. I did. I named my dog Tommy <laughs> DePaola, like P-A-W-L-A, yeah. and it makes me laugh every time. Um, I mean, I love Tommy, the real Tommy, the human Tommy yeah, right. <laughs> so much. Um, and this was back in 2018, I think. I was out there. He had invited me to come out to his studio and meet him in person. And he had done this a couple of times. And I thought he just... It, Tommy was like this meg, just just larger than life personality, sparkling, effervescent. And I thought, he's just saying that he wants me to come out. But then he said it a couple of times on different occasions. So I thought, okay, I'll come out and visit him. So I did. But when I was about to go out to North to New England, I brought my two daughters with me to go visit him. Mm-hmm. And I had just finished interviewing Jeannie Birdsall, who wrote the Penderwicks series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I told her, hey, I'm going to be in New England in a couple of weeks. And any chance you'd want to get coffee? Sure that she would say no. Right. <laughs> Not say anything at all. But right. she did. She said, oh, yes, let's go have breakfast. So we drive out to Northampton to have breakfast with Jeannie Birdsall. Again, like you do. This all sounds ridiculous. I know. I'm aware. <laughs> this sounds like, who do you have breakfast? How do you have breakfast with the author of The Penderwakes? Um, during that breakfast, we just, we had a great time. We just got to know each other really well. We had such a good time that she said, I would love to take you to my, like, just, we could walk to my favorite indie bookstore around the corner. And then we could walk to my house if you want to see my gardens. Yes, yes, I would like that. So we do. And as we're walking to her house, she points at this government building that was had this beautiful garden on the side of it and said, see that garden? I planted that. It used to be mm. super ugly, but I walked by it every day. And here's the funny part, Jonathan. I thought she told me that she asked if she could plant the garden and that they told her that the powers that be told her, no, you can't. That's a liability. You can't do that. And so she planted it after dark. I could swear that she told me this. However, since then, in the last couple of months, when I showed her the story I wrote about this woman who is told she cannot plant a garden outside a government building, and so she plants it under the cover of darkness, Uh um, she said, oh, no, no, I told you that I thought about asking, but I was sure they would say no for liability reasons, and so I just did it on the sly. (laughs) <laughs> wow, my imagine really imagination really took that and ran with it. So yeah. in my story, Lou Alice asks to plant a garden outside the city hall building and uh, is told no that she's you know basically the idea being that she's not worth much. She's not like you're not you're too much like liability to have around, right? Like yeah. there's not much that you can add here that we can't do ourselves. So uh-huh. to go on home. And so she goes under the cover of darkness and plants this garden that makes all, all the town's people's lives more beautiful than it was before. But she's invisible, which also kind of speaks to this idea of like um, maybe a little rebellious part of me wanting to comment about the beautiful things that a lot of women do yeah. um, that are never really acknowledged, that are sort of mm. invisible to the world, but make our world more beautiful. Yeah. Tell me that refrain again. So tend water mend that besides being a um way of talking about gardens it seems to be a way of talking about creative work mm. so yes. tend water yes. mend i mean that is what it feels like we're doing i think when we're doing creative work when we're writing or making music or whatever our creative work looks like making art mm-hmm 
or that's what I mean. The story of this idea felt like a seed. <laughs> that it, so at the time when when Jeannie Birds all told me about this garden of hers, and we enjoyed the rest of the day. We went on our merry way. The next day we went and saw Tommy, and it was months later that. I got up really early in the morning because I was trying to develop my own habit of writing every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, I'll just see if I can't start a story. And this is the story that sort of welled up in me. And this is where the name Lou Alice just came out. So I'm sure this is like, yeah. you know, all these things that were like seeds, really. You planted a seed yeah. with the name and Jeannie planted this seed with this story. And then I think reading Miss Rumphius by Barbara Cooney, this story that my book is definitely a love letter of sorts to Miss Rumphius by Barbara Cooney. There's a lot mm-hmm. of parallels you'll see in both. I think those are all seeds in the, but we can't really, it's not like it just magically instantly becomes something bigger. It's like over time. So I guess, yes, that's so 10 water men sort of feels like a. Yeah. I, I'm especially interested when you, when you talk about this being a, um, that at some level being about the work of women that doesn't get, acknowledged yeah um it does make me think about how much creative work is being done by women and by people who think they don't have the time or the inclination or the or the uh or the talent or whatever to do creative work when in fact you know there's a whole lot of ways to be creative besides what we think of as art yeah. And also, I mean, like, I guess in the story, now that you put it that way, Lou Alice is doing all this beautiful, invisible, creative work that does benefit the lives of others, but she's not actually doing it for that reason, I don't think. Like, the creative work is just, its you can see it sort of in the spreads where Breezy is illustrated. Um, and really, I should say that the illustrator, Breezy Brookshire, brought this book to life in, in many ways. I am a firm believer in a picture book only being half the text. Like mm-hmm. she starts with the text, but half of that story is what Breezy, Breezy breathed into it when she was painting it. And you can see the joy that actually planting this garden brings Lou Alice as she's planting this garden. So it's not even like creative work in order to be seen or in order yeah. to go toward some particular end but the work itself right. is nourishing that nourishing to her the the sewing and the tending yeah the watering and mending is is nourishing to her yeah and that i mean i, I love that I, I, that's such a great reminder that the the person who does the work is blessed in the work yeah and right. it's also a blessing to others and yes yeah. um and it it, it doesn't it doesn't require martyrdom, right? You you can be a blessing to others without being a martyr. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and be nourished and, and like buoyed up by it without either accolades from the world or even uh, acknowledgement, honestly. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, because in this book, Lou Alice has made, created a, help make her community a place that's a little more like a place she wants to live. Yes, that's right. Which I guess in thinking about where the story started, that's sort of what Jeannie Birds all did. She had to walk by this building every day. Mm-hmm. She just didn't want to walk by an ugly building anymore and thought she shouldn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Was well, tell me the Paula part of that story, or just the fact that you were had gone over? So, what, what, why, what were you just drop? You were name dropping, weren't you? That's what. No. Was- so yes, I was hundred <laughs> percent. But then also more. Uh, so Tommy, uh, the next year, I came back to visit him because I was developing this habit of visiting him every summer, yeah. and he knew I had been working on several picture books, and he said I'd like to see some, and so I. I finished was whiffing my smelling salts because I thought, yeah, right. oh no, I have to show my work to Tommy DePella. Yeah. Um, and I did show him several. Uh, and he did say, like, okay, this one, this particular book, no, this is no good. Just toss that one mm-hmm. in the trash. And then this one over here, this one could use some work, but I want to talk about Lou Alice. Okay. So for an hour, we sat in his barn studio and he tore every centimeter apart of that story. Really? Tommy DePaolo, like I said, is like this really joyful, happy. If you see any pictures of him online, he is definitely laughing or smiling. Like that's just how uh-huh. he lives his life. Lived his life, I should say, because he's now since passed. Um, but when he is working, he is in the zone. Like he gets mm. this. I'd never seen him like this. He gets very intense. Um, for an hour, I got the roughest critique of my life. And interestingly, really? at the end, he puts it down and says, I would like to illustrate this book. Really? I thought, oh, I mean, that's not what I thought. Like halfway through yeah. this, while he was ripping apart every sentence yeah. <laughs> that I had written. <laughs> um, so they are, we shared an agent and, and our agent took that book out with him as a potential illustrator, but the, the publishers weren't really interested. It wasn't what they were looking for. They told us they didn't think it would sell well. Um, all kinds of things. They told us it was too old fashioned. And, um, so it just sort of just got to a standstill part, part where we weren't sure what to do point where we weren't really sure what to do with it. And then in 2020, March of 2020, um, Tommy passed away mm-hmm. and bringing this book to life then to me has felt like, sort of a way of honoring him through this story that we both loved and we both mm. really did want to see come to life. Now, I never told, Breezy might not know this, and she, she might be hearing it for the first time on this podcast, I don't know, that Tommy wanted me, uh, wanted to to illustrate it because I never wanted to tell her that before she worked on it. Like, you wouldn't really mm. want to be told, sure. like, I wanted C.S. Lewis to write this book, but since no. he can't, can you write it? <laughs> yeah, you know? right. Because then you're like, well, now I can't write anything. And Breezy, the book itself, like seeing it now, I realize like this book needed to be illustrated. The story needed needed Breezy's touch. So it's just, she's done such a magnificent job and it's been an absolute delight to work with her. And being able to bring it to life to me feels like a way to honor Tommy. So I've de- my dedication in the book is to Tommy's memory. Uh, that's great. Okay, so... um is it okay if we talk about like everything that happens in this book or is this, is, is this spoilers? Oh yeah. No, we can, it's a picture yeah. book. We can spoil it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So um, talk to me about this idea that, um, that Lou Alice, she, she, she goes away to a, I guess a nursing home. Is it a nursing home where she ends up? Yeah. I mean, that's up to a little interpretation, um, but. She goes away in an ambulance. Away. Yes. Mm-hmm. And nobody really notices that she's gone. Yeah. Except a little girl who's been peeking around the tree in every spread I've noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the question is. I, I just thought it was really interesting, this idea of this this person that we've learned to love and like being completely forgotten. I, I, I wonder what young readers think about that. I mean, you know, 
it's maybe too early to say it's what young too readers. early for me to say yeah i mean i know what my own young readers think about it because i've been reading it to them i've read it to them um although i don't think that's the part you know it's interesting i think when we read with our kids we have a different experience than our kids do you know like we mm-hmm. see things from a different lens than they do yeah um my kids my my nine-year-old twins in particular will get a very solemn look on their face when this happens and they kind of quiet and still. But it's almost like they just know something's coming. And then when you turn the page, what you find out is that nobody noticed Luellis was gone except for a little girl. And she yeah. just sort of bursts out of this house with all this spunk and life. And yeah. I think from my kids' perspective, like, oh, now we're talking, right? Like, I think that's kind of what they see. Um, so the rest of the story here, we have this little girl who realizes um, that all of the things that Lou Alice had been tending are being neglected. Yeah. And nobody seems to notice she was gone, but she misses her. So she decides one day that she's going to continue the work of Lou Alice. So she starts tending the plants and feeding this cat that had been uh, around before, following Lou Alice around before, and doing all of the work of Lou Alice. But still, there's something inside her that is like this isn't there's there's still something else that I have to do. And to me this feels like this is there's a spread there where the the little girl's on a hillside and she's sort of looking off in the distance and the actual spread is heavily inspired by Ms. Rumpheus. So the the way the swooping mm-hmm. of the hills breezy really um let Miss Rumpheus inform that illustration. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like that true moment where you realize like we have all these giants before us. We have like the Tolkien's and the Lewis's and the, mm. and Tommy DePaula's art and all these beautiful stories and people who've come before us that are truly the shoulders of giants that we stand upon. But we have something, we have a reason we're here too. There's something that we're called to do. There's a reason we're here. And we all feel that pull of there's some reason that I'm here, that I'm here. Yeah. There's something that God wants me to do. And that's that moment that I see for the little girl standing on that hilltop of, like, yes, I'm going to carry on the work of Lou Ellis, but there's also something else and I don't know what it is yet. Mm. What is it that only I can bring? And then she decides to, she's walking back through the garden. She picks some flowers. She stops at the library instead of passing by and goes mm. in and gets a book. And then she makes her way to the nursing home and um, and sits next to Lou Ellis and reads to her and does something to make the world more beautiful herself. And that's that sort of, call that I think we all feel on our lives to carry on the traditions and the work of those who've gone before us and left us such an amazing treasure trove of of work to build on and also to keep making and keep doing. Yeah. This. Yeah, that, that's I love so much that idea in this little book that um you know a, a new generation of people making the world beautiful, you know, inspired by helped by older an older yeah. generation and yeah and, and you know now that i'm in my 50s i i think about that kind of thing a lot you know i mean it's 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 how might i help other people you know do the kind of work i mean so part of my job is doing doing the creative work but part of my job is helping other people do the creative work yeah um, you know um i hadn't really thought about it this way until just now but um one of the things that has long bothered me about an idea that I see, like I'm, a, I'm very present in the homeschooling world. I've homeschooled all my six kids and I mm-hmm. speak and write for homeschoolers. Um, but there is a, a tone that I've noticed there that I think is not just for the homeschooling world, but does happen a lot mm-hmm. there, which is this idea that the old books are always better than the new books. Yeah. The old, yeah. and 
that's always um, bothered me on a few different levels. One being that I just wonder how we'll ever have new books that are worth reading if all of our kids and young adults and then older adults like at, through their lives, if they are raised thinking, well, they were just born in the wrong generation. They weren't born in the time when all these golden, golden, wonderful books were made. And so they've missed it. Like I feel, I always felt like that was a weird message to send to our children mm-hmm. that all the best books are from the people who are dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess in some ways, maybe this book is sort of subconsciously tapping into that idea where I feel like, yes, there's these treasures in the old books and in the old ways and the old traditions. And these are things that we should and want to carry on because they're beautiful and wonderful. And also um, we have something here to keep. Yeah. Like, moving that creativity forward that's absolutely i mean one of the one of the things that i get most excited about at read aloud revival is the idea that maybe someday um there will be a young person who grows up who listened to the podcast or was read to their read to aloud because their mom listened to the podcast or whatever Mm -hmm. and will someday you know be making these beautiful books and it will be because, you know, like that will be a, a torch that they carry forward yeah. long past any of us who are alive today will be able to yeah. their children or grandchildren. So that is a really beautiful image for me in my mind, like sort of that passing of the torch. So maybe that's what the book's about. I don't know. I yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I would be shocked if your work at Read Aloud Revival didn't result in some really good creative work. Mm. Coming in, I mean, surely. I mean, you've been doing this enough years that I'm. I'm surely you've gotten letters and pictures from some of your young. Yes, definitely, and or and and story snippets or emails from kids saying that they they're writing stories and they're yeah yeah are as a as a entity, I guess. Read a lot of revival is young yet, Um, but we I'm. Yeah, it feels to me like really like you said, it's making creative work is one part of our, I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but our privilege is another word. Yeah. And also Mm. then mentoring or helping others to make the beautiful work. It's another. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I hadn't actually, I hadn't thought about that in, in conjunction with this story, but I I find that there's a few different things um, that people have pointed out to me about a little more beautiful that I didn't do on purpose, but I can see that they're there. And and mm-hmm. Kate DiCamello says this. She says that a story is always smarter than you are. And yeah, so yeah. people will comment about things that are in your story and you'll go, oh, yes, you're right. That is definitely there. And I mm-hmm. for sure did not, was not smart enough to do that on purpose. Or, yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 um, I remember teaching literature for many years before I started, you know, writing stories. And the question my students were interested in that I was interested in is did Shakespeare really, you know, think through all that and put all that stuff in there. And I, now that I've written a few books, I'm like pretty sure he, he didn't think through all that, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Yes. Right. (laughs) Right. But just because it wasn't put there on purpose doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean something. Yeah. 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 That was the question. Kate DeCamillo said that um, early on, she'd written a few books and a, a child came up to her at a signing and asked why she why light is such an ongoing theme in her books. And she, she said, you put so many stars in your books and light. Mm. She thought, really? Yeah. <laughs> and then she realized, yes, she did. And actually, 
it's kind of a major theme in some of her work and it does mean something. And even though she didn't consciously, you know, maybe it's better that way. Yeah. You know, I, I remember some, some reviewer talking about how I, you know, in the, my second Wilder King book, the secret of the swamp King, how I'd obviously was thinking about, you know, uh, Huck Finn as the people were going down the river. And I thought shows what, you know, I wasn't thinking about Huck Finn at all. But then I realized, I mean, then I went back and read Huck Finn. I was like, I was thinking about Huck Finn at some level yeah. because there's a whole lot of that, you know, that's, that I had no idea. I mean, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. I was influenced by that book, even though I wasn't consciously thinking, boy, how could I, how could I write an homage to Mark Twain here? You know? Yeah. Well, okay. So isn't there a Tolkien quote about like the leaf mold or something? The leaf mold the of the mind. Yeah. It yeah. all goes in there. And then, and you know, leaf mold doesn't really, it's not especially fertile until it's not recognizable as leaves anymore. Okay. Until it all goes in there and it kind of starts to look like something else. Yeah. And then it gives rise to, and you don't remember what you're. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, I was reading, um, oh, shoot, uh, Dickens, the the one, um, uh, Mr. Pickwick, Pickwick Papers. Okay. And um, this was, I mean, I hadn't read Pickwick Papers in 30 years. I picked it up last year and thought, I hope nobody else notices how much it looks like I was copying Pickwick Papers in parts of The Charlatan's Boy, because that had just gone in there deep, deep, deep. I love that book so much, but hadn't, but hadn't, you know, read it or possibly thought about it too much in a long time. And it, it just all came out and it looked like I was copying Oh, how interesting. Well, I've not read the Pickwick Papers and I have read the Charlatan's Boy, but um, interesting. Pickwick yeah, Papers I mean, is probably a little better. But. I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think he could have used an editor that cut some of his wordiness, if I'm being yeah. honest. Um, I wrote a novel this last year that you I don't know we'll ever see the light of day or not. Um, I'll have to read it. Right now, it's just put away where I don't have to look at it and I'll come back to it later. A very yeah. short novel. But interestingly, I was reading aloud The Hobbit as I was writing this. And when I did my first revision of the novel, I just had to laugh because I thought it is so obvious to me, at least, <laughs> that I was reading The Hobbit at the same time because um, there were just different things Tolkien does in his writing, but even the characterization of the Hobbit that was coming out in my mm-hmm. characters. So it was kind of funny. I was like, well, I didn't mean to do that, but yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, I want to return to something you said 15 minutes ago that I wonder if you have what you have more to say about it. And you said, when you read the kids, it's a different experience for you than it is for the kids. Can you say a little more about that? Because I think there's some interesting ideas there. Yeah, I don't know if I can articulate this as well as I'd like to. But for example, if I was to read a fairy tale to my, you know, the fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales can be pretty grim <laughs> mm-hmm. and gory. And and um, we're reading this, you know, you could read a, a fairy tale, uh, which one? Cinderella, let's say. And if you're reading the Grimm's version, I think it's the Grimm's version where she gets the stepsister has like the red hot shoes or maybe it's the stepmother. Do you, do you remember? I, I, I've not actually read them. I've heard. That's okay. my, aren't they kind of cutting their feet off to fit in the shoes? Yes. They're like cutting off. The, the stepsisters are cutting off parts of their feet to fit into the glass slipper. This is not in the Disney version, right? <laughs> um, and I think one of them like ends up dancing in red hot shoes. Now I'm probably mixing up fairy tales. Somebody listening yeah, right. to this will know. But this sort of idea that I can read a fairy tale like that with my kids and they are just like not nearly as angsty as I am yeah. about 
the same kinds of peril or the same kinds uh-huh. of bad things that happen. I mean, I think with my, especially with my young kids, all they want to know is that the bad guys got their due. So like yeah. if I'm worried about whether it's too violent, that's not even, it's just not even a thing on their radar. But if the unjust evil antagonist does not get their due, then that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So I don't know um, exactly what, except that I think we read with the sort of a modern parent paradigm that wants to shield and protect. I don't think that's always a bad thing. It's just not the same way that a kid reads Hansel and Gretel. I mean, when I read Hansel and Gretel as a child, I did not think my parents were going to leave me out in the woods if they couldn't, if they didn't have enough money to feed me. <laughs> um, as a parent, now reading that story, I think, oh my goodness, should I read this to my children? Like that's my yeah. sort of instant um, instinct. And then I have to remind myself that this is what stories are for. But uh, Wait, what is what stories are for? Say it, say it again. You said you said that's what stories are for. What what is what stories are for? Um, for helping us see truths or things that we can't see by just looking at them, like helping us look at them obliquely. I think there was a Chesterton quote. I'm pretty sure it was a Chesterton quote where he talks about how the reason that apples are golden in a fairy tale is because do you know what to remind remind us of the time when we were excited that apples were green yes and that that's what to me for children just i'm standing in the door is pretty exciting yes if you get a little older something you need to have a dragon or something in the door yes and kids are just Excited that there's a door. That there's a door. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think to recapture that fascination, um, and also like a deeper truth of I don't know what Cinderella, what deeper truths are there. Like I'm sure somebody who's smarter in fairy tales could could tell yeah. us all kinds of things that would blow our minds. I love that kind of thing. <laughs> um, I love being taught by people like that. But um, I do think that stories touch us in a way that just like pragmatically learning something doesn't. And in that mm-hmm. same, like, why, why I'm struggling to articulate it in that same way of like a golden apple reminding me that it's amazing that an apple is actually green. That's, yeah. 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 I don't know if it's the same passage or not that um, probably isn't because uh, Chesterton can be a little repetitive. Um, <laughs> and, but he talks about we, at Christmas, we fill stockings with presents. But the greatest present of all is that we have feet to fill our stockings with. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something Chesterton would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how would you answer that? I, can I turn the tables on you? How would you answer what are stories for? Um, I think, you know, I, I, I would answer this question differently, no matter, you know, depending what day you, you asked. Okay. But I think a lot of it has to do with training us in making order out of chaos. Oh, okay. And so, you know, that's, that is, you know, in, in God's create, you know, creation, God's creativity is the earth was formless and void, and then he's going to shape it into something that's not formless and void. And that's the, you know, uh, pretty fundamental to creative work. And, and I think that's the, you know, sometimes I get in the mindset of, well, there's production and then there's consumption. And do you want to be a producer or do you want to be a consumer? But the truth is, as you consume stories, you are getting practice in 
in making making order. And like you said, kids, when kids are so upset at a story in which there's injustice, right, where injustice is not rectified, mm-hmm. um, that's that's a clue <laughs> to the what it's like to be a human being. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, and the so I I think that's I think that's a big that's at the risk of sounding overly moralistic because because there's there certainly are stories that are overly moralistic but I think in a broader sense um, as we pay attention to what works as a story like what stories satisfy us and what stories don't I think they shape our it it, it helps us see what is the actual nature of the universe. Um, and so that's why I'm excited about, that's one of the reasons I'm excited about stories. And then there's something about the idea that a story invites you to inhabit a moral universe in a way that, I mean, I, as much as I appreciate sermons, a sermon isn't, you know, isn't the same invitation to inhabit. Um, it's a it's a way to explain and articulate, but that's different from an invitation to inhabit. And we need both. Yeah, right? it's like there's like a difference, I think, between knowing and loving. Sort of a um, yeah. You can be told something and know it, but like right. It it work. Yeah, stories work at the level of desire. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they can shape our desires in ways that. Um, that other forms of communication yeah. don't. And so I, you know, I appreciate the, the op ed page of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I appreciate the, the fact that, that, you know, a, a well articulated argument helps me, helps crystallize my thoughts. And yet what I really need is something that, that helps me know what to feel about things because that's, that's, you know, what Jonathan Edwards called the, the religious affections. You know how do I how do I feel about the world and God and and uh, and if I if I hear a story of injustice, for instance, um, somebody can explain the injustice to me, but I need to feel that I, I need to feel that there's there's something about the world that that's out of joint. So and, then I think in that case, like so then thinking about it this way, stories help us then like order our affections and shape our loves mm-hmm. so that they're more rightly, I don't know, tuned. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're not, are you not going to uh, uh, mention St. Augustine here? This is your place to mention St. Augustine. You, I'm going to let you mention St. <laughs> Augustine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the disordered and reordering of the loves and, and that's what, that's a stories are really important for the reordering of our loves. Mm. Um, for better, for good or ill, right? I mean, yeah, some some right. people tell some stories that that sow chaos in the world and um, and make us, you know, discontent in places that we ought to be seeking contentment rather than sowing discontent. This is interesting because I think also when it comes to like since we're talking about children's stories and how children read stories differently than we do. I really feel like, and and I've heard this said before, uh, Catherine Patterson wrote about this in one of her essays. She's written a lot of different essays on writing for children. Um, 
that we have this moral obligation to write toward hope for children. Mm. And as a Christian, I feel like that's just our moral obligation to tell children the truth, right? So, yeah. And the truth right. is hope. And so right. for me, it feels imperative that children's books, even those that can get like, I, I'm thinking of like a Gary Schmidt book. Gary Schmidt is a brilliant YA and middle grade and picture book author, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and some of his, especially his YA books can get very, very dark and they always, always leave you with this sense of hope and fresh eyes. And when I f- close any of his books, I always like look around me and feel like I love people better mm. and I love this world I'm in better. Yeah. Um, even as dark as it feels at certain parts of his books. Uh-huh. And that's what I feel like a, a children's book or a can do. And then that, that kind of like shape and that kind of seed that's planted, like you were saying when you wrote the charlatans or uh, yeah, charlatans boy, you didn't even realize how the pickwick picker. No, I'm getting it mixed up. Yeah. Yeah, Pickwick. Yeah. Uh, Was influencing you. I feel like all the books that our kids read when they're children have that potential to be that seed that just, it's, you know, it's buried somewhere in that leaf mold. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and then later on, it will form them in ways that we can't really predict. That's ways right. That we can't didactically say, this is how this reading this book will help you. Yeah. A, B, and C, you know? Yeah. And as parents, we, we better get comfortable with that idea. It means, a, that's a really good point, because it means a lot of relinquishing control and a lot less angsting about like whether we're either getting our kids all the right books or that they're maybe reading something we are wish they hadn't read or ideas that we wish that they didn't have to deal with. Um, yeah. Because they're God's children. I feel like, you know, that's that control we all really want to hold on to. But yeah, yeah. leaf mold of the mind means you don't get to decide what comes of it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's such a, a good point. And um, yeah, kids, when it comes to, to grace and when it comes to trust, kids are the final frontier, you know? I, I don't want, I never wanted my kids to really need Jesus. <laughs> It's so true. Oh my goodness, it's so true. Yes. I know I know that every point of growth in my life came through pain and yet it's so hard to let our children experience pain. Yep. Um I we 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 need to wrap up, but I I do want to I do want to ask since since your audience is homeschool heavy. Yeah. Do you spend a, a lot. Of, I mean, I think I already know the answer to this question. <laughs> so I'm going to phrase this: Do you not spend a lot of time <laughs> um, reassuring parents of this kind of thing? Like the, parents coming to you saying, "What are the books my kid needs to read that I can have guaranteed outcomes?" And you saying, "That's not how this works." Uh, yes. So a couple things come to mind for me. One is that I think, especially for those of us who are homeschooling, I think all parents are like this in some degree, but especially in homeschooling, we tend to be, <laughs> ladies, I'm just going to, I'm raising my hand here. I'm not pointing fingers at you. I promise. <laughs> we tend to be a little controlling. The Part of the reason that we are homeschooling our kids is because we are like, we could do this better, or mm. at least we want to be in charge of what's happening in yeah. the educational component like area of our kids lives so there's um we have like letting go opening our hands and holding our children loosely is very very difficult also um it's a really hard at least it's been really hard for me and i know it's been hard for a lot of the uh, women in my audience to really 
embrace that idea that your success is not bound up in how your kids turn out Mm -hmm. because everything else we do is outcome-based. It's like how your success and your worth is based on how well something does. And so, but our children are these unique images of God that are completely separate from us. And so that like delineating our job between like showing up and being faithful and raising our children and, and teaching and reading to and, and raising up our kids, not, our success is just the showing up is not hinged on how yeah. they turn out or if they turn out like we hoped they would. That's really yeah. key. And with books, and specifically with books, um, I think we get worried because we want our kids to read all the right books before they leave home, forgetting that most of the reading they do in their lives should actually happen after they leave home. Yeah. Um, and also like on that eternal quest for like, what am I forgetting? Like, I'm not, surely I'm forgetting something important and I need to yeah. do something. You know, there's something I'm lacking here. And so we're searching yeah. for that, whether it's just the right book list or just the right curriculum right. or some other facet of parenting. Yeah. Well, as your Lou Alice would say, you can sow, you can tend, you can water, you can mend. But the harvest is God's business, right? That's right. All right, we better wrap up there. I, I would ask you who are the writers make you want to write, but you read too many writers. It would, we'd be here all day. <laughs> so. We would. I will say, I mean, I, I can say like I have fully, well, I don't know if I could say, say fully embraced. I'm becoming more comfortable with, um, I do feel pulled to write more after I read picture books. And I find that a lot of the stories I naturally come up with are by picture book size, like the scope of the problem in the story or whatever is a picture book size. And so for the last mm. several years, I have been trying to write these novels. I've worked with some very accomplished novelists like Mary Rose Wood very closely on some of my mm-hmm. projects. And it was funny because at one point she looked at me and she said, every novel idea, because I was coming up with all these different novel ideas and starting them. And she would say, they're all picture book size. And I think I'm just realizing that, you know, nothing makes me feel like I want to write more than when I put down a picture book that I go, oh, that was magic. You know, that was yeah. So I think I'm just embracing that. We, I, I don't know if this is true for you, Jonathan, but I feel like in my head, I'm like, well, I'll be a real writer. I'm going to publish two nonfiction adult books, but still I'll be a real writer when I'm a novelist. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that maybe that's not, maybe that's not the kind of writer that I'm in. And that's not the kind of writer God made me to be. I don't know. Right. But we have these ideas of like what, what we're supposed to do or something. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I, it's, I, I, for some reason, we have this idea that, like you said, that you have to write a novel to be a yeah a real writer. When when I think about the percentage of the reading that I do that's a not that are novels, it's a relatively small percentage of what I read. Yeah, and that I benefit from and that I enjoy. I mean, I do I do like novels, but um, but you you know every it it's so helpful. I think to identify, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, you can choose what you want to write about, but you don't get to choose what you can make live. Oh, wow. That's the negative way to put it because she was never afraid to put it in the negative way. The other way to say is, what can you make live? And that's what the world needs from you is what you can make live. You know, your little patch of ground, like Lou Alice's patch outside the town hall or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. That's yours to tend. And there's, if it turns out to not be a novel, that's okay. That's right. Um, well, thank you, Sarah McKenzie. Oh, 
it's always Absolutely. a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Um, and I love your little book. I mean, I, that's, I didn't mean that. That sounds no, it's good. It's, it, it is, is a little book. book. It's a little it is book. a beautiful yeah. book. Yeah. And uh, you, I love what you've done. I love what Breezy Brookshire's done. Um, so I hope people will help bring this thing into the world in your Kickstarter and it will, um, you know, it'll, I hope this, this uh, story bears fruit. So Thank thanks you. for writing it. Thank you. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.